Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City Councilors are asking staff to speed up looking at what they can do to stop hate groups from rallying outside of City Hall. Trudeau meets Trump in Washington today as Mexico becomes the first country to ratify the new NAFTA deal. Also, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has unveiled his climate change plan, promising that he would meet emission reduction targets while eliminating the carbon tax. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Brad Clark is a city councilor now, but of course one time was a cabinet minister uh, at Queen's Park for many, many years. First of all, Brad, thanks for joining us today. really appreciate you jumping on today. My pleasure, sir. A lot of nervous people, I guess, around. When, whenever there's a cabinet shuffle, or the you know the proposed cabinet shuffle, the, I guess everybody gets, if you're in cabinet already, you're getting a little anxious waiting for that phone to ring, aren't you? Yeah, if the phone the call doesn't ring the night before, you're not really sure whether or not you're in, out, or being moved. So <laughs> it's, I feel for them this morning, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, whatever your political leanings are, I mean, this has got to be pretty ans- an antsy time for just about everybody. With, it's an hour before, so everybody knows who's going to do what. I mean, they just haven't made it public, right? The ones who are being shuffled or appointed would know, and I'm assuming that if someone was being fired from cabinet, they would know also uh, with an hour to go. But it's it's... <laughs> An awful lot of leaks coming out of Queen's Park this morning, that's for sure. Absolutely. Anyway, let's get back on, on what your concern is right now, among many other things at City Hall. Uh, the events of the last four or five days, of course, and we want to talk about security, uh, not just at Gage Park. We we had the chief on yesterday talking about the police actions, uh, and and he made some statements that I think, well, I'm not just sure they clarified things, but they certainly uh, caused some interest uh, with some of these involved people. But you, you've got a concern with City Hall itself, and it wasn't just about what happened this past weekend. It's what, what's been happening there for the last couple of months, really, in the forecourt on the weekends. Yeah, I had the. I was downtown uh, last Saturday, and uh, I happened to drive by City Hall with with uh, my family, and we saw the protests and saw what was going on, and and it was incredibly disconcerting. I I have no objection to people protesting if they don't like Mr. Trudeau, if they don't like Mr. Ford, if they don't like me. Everyone's they have freedom of expression. You can protest, and you can even use some vulgar language that I would never use. But when they start to cross the line and it becomes um, almost an incitement of hate to specific racialized groups or, or, or the, the uh, uh, lesbian and gay community itself, then I've got a problem with it. That, that's uh, inciting hatred or inciting violence. That's, that's a real challenge. And that's where um, the city council and the, and the city has to set very clear policy. Now, when you were down there, did you see anything like that that you thought crossed the line? Uh, there were some signs that that um, were calling out uh, against immigrate immigrants in the south, newcomers. Uh, there, it was very clear that this group was was anti-Muslim. Um, and then I understood that when they went down to Gage Park, it became much more aggressive with the shouting and and. And then, of course, eventually it, it, it turned into violence. And, and that's why we have to have policies. We have to make it clear that anyone that wants to use municipal facilities, here's, here's how far you can go to the left or the right. Here's the policies. Um, and if, if, if you incite violence, if your group incites violence, then you may not be permitted to come back onto municipal property. You can be banned from municipal property for that type of behavior. So there are policies in place. There is a zero-tolerance policy, of course, with Hamilton facilities, recreational facilities, et cetera, et cetera. 
are, are those sufficient, Brad, uh, or is the enforcement lacking, or, or do you need to beef things up here? Uh, that policy is pretty clear, and I think that's where uh, Councillor Wilson uh, spoke to to that issue. If this was at a, a uh, community centre on the inside, and people were being aggressive with staff or aggressive with other people, uh, the police would be called and they could be banned from, from the property. It, it's, it seems, for whatever reason, that, that we've been a little bit complacent. Uh, we all support freedom of expression, uh, but we really haven't monitored the movement of the, the yellow vests, I believe they call themselves, and what they've been doing here in front of City Hall every Saturday. And, and that's on us. So there has to be monitoring from this point forward, and the city manager has committed to doing that. She's committed to adding additional security, um, but we need clear policies because freedom of expression, as you know, Bill, is a constitutional right. Yeah. Um, but it's not an absolute right. It does not give you the right to incite violence. It does not give you the right to to um, threaten death or harm to people. And it, and it certainly does not give you the right to spread hatred against any specific group. Well, and I mentioned that in a blog the other day, too. And, I, you know, if, if people believe in free speech and freedom of assembly, and I think most of us do, then you better be prepared to hear some stuff or see some stuff from time to time that you don't really like, not just that you disagree with, but you find vile. Uh, and that may be the case in this situation. But when do who makes the determination of who and when has crossed that line? I mean, is it is it going to be the people that you put on an extra security? Are, are police going to have to be called in? I mean, how, where, where do you go next? And, and, and just exactly who's going to be the one that's going to have to do that? And, and therein lies the challenge for the city of Hamilton and every municipality. Um, I recall there was an issue in Fort Erie a while back where someone was protesting out front of City Hall and they banned him from the property because he had signs that were dropping the F-bomb and other vulgarities. And it was offensive to the, the, the broader community was the city's position. Uh, they lost that case in court. So we have to acknowledge that while we may find vulgarities offensive, Bill, you and I and many other people, probably the majority, uh, it's still freedom of expression. And so they're allowed to do that type of thing. Again, where they cross the line is when they start to incite uh, violence against uh, specific groups, um, incite hate. Those are the challenges. And you need evidence of that before you turn around and try to ban someone from a municipal facility. So there has to be pretty clear policies here with some form of procedure that we would exercise so that the courts would deem that we are being procedurally fair when we made the decision to ban this individual. Well, and as uh, some of the feedback I've heard, and I'm sure you have, Brad, over the last couple of days, because you've been pretty vocal about this, about trying to develop some sort of a policy to try to deal with this, is, uh, is do you make it specific towards for instance, right-of-center groups, ultra-right groups such as the one that we seem to be dealing with here, uh, does that give free license to people on the other side of the political spectrum? Or, or do you, is this going to have to be an all-encompassing policy for everybody who wants to protest, for whatever it is they want to protest? Yeah, it, it, I would argue, Bill, um, vehemently that it would need to be an all-encompassing policy um, because we really don't know when a group from the left or a group from the right and Heck, we, we have arguments as to how far they are on the left or the right and, and where they are on the spectrum. That's irrelevant. The entire community know, should know that you can come and protest on any municipal facility, but you cannot encourage violence against people. You cannot 
uh, have racist signs out there. Those are some of the things that, that we should put into policy. We may lose in court, um, but if we don't start showing leadership on it, then we'll never get there. And quite honestly, um, if we show some leadership on it, most people will, will, will fall into line. Very few are, are willing to, to press the envelope. And those that are, we should be ready to deal with. I know we're splitting hairs here, but I got an email yesterday after we had this discussion on the program, uh, and somebody asked about the protest specifically at City Hall uh, and said, City Council, this was their, their assertion anyway, City Council can pass any kind of a law or, or as you say, criteria uh, for behavior on city property. But he says, if this, if the group moves onto the sidewalk on Main Street, they're not on city property. That's public property. Are they allowed? Did, did the same rules apply there? Or did, is that a, a, the barrier where they can basically kind of a, a free zone to do what they want when they want? Yeah, so <laughs> what we're really talking about is freedom of expression. And so people have the right to protest on municipal property, on city on city sidewalks. They do not have the right to hold up traffic. That's where the police will intervene. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, the municipality has to show leadership. And we have to work with the police and our provincial and federal partners to ensure that any policy that we put forth that limits freedom of expression, as per what the courts are saying, you cannot incite violence, you cannot incite hatred, that we have policies in place that are actually defendable. And I'm not sure we we can actually get to that point, but simply by having that discussion will bring attention to what's going on here and, and and people will slowly come to toe the line. I, I know that this is a work in progress, and staff are, are going to come back to you in, in a little while with some ideas and some suggestions. Uh, but is there a template someplace else that you could follow and say, well, look, at this is how such and such a municipality dealt with it? Uh, there are court cases across the country where municipalities have tried to deal with this type of thing. Normally it's because of vulgarity, it's because of signs, um, uh, sometimes uh, town councils get upset that they're being criticized, whether rightly or wrongly, in the public square. And the courts have ruled that individual citizens have the right to do that type of protest in the town square. The difference is how far do we, how far can they go? Um, and I would argue in this case, I mean, they're not really slamming city council. They certainly have signs out there against the United Nations and against Mr. Trudeau. But when they start to, to promote hatred towards uh, the Muslim community, hatred towards the Jewish community, hatred towards the, um, um, uh, the, the gay community, that's where we have a problem. And, and someone should be stepping in, someone should be meeting with those leaders and making it very clear that we don't have a problem with you protesting, but you can't do what you're doing there. You've got to avoid inciting hatred. I, I know part of the discussion, I know there was a meeting Tuesday evening at, at City Council as well, uh, where the public actually made some uh, some presentations and a number of concerned citizens did speak up at that time. But I know one of the things that came up at that meeting was uh, once you get a little further down the road here and, and try to formulate a policy, uh, the other element to this, like any law or any bylaw that you pass at the city, Brad, is enforcement. And and I know the question there was, well, who's going to do the enforcement? Uh, there is already staff at the city, I know, that is in charge of security, and I know the mayor talked about increasing that, but that begs the question, are they actually trained to handle this sort of thing? Um, 
and that and that we need to discuss when when the policies come forward. But I can share one example that that is is quite possible and quite reasonable in my mind. If th- there was violence at Gage Park, a number of the people that were here went down to Gage Park. If the police department eventually can identify those people and they lay charges against those people, then the city solicitor should meet with the police department and meet with the crown attorney and suggest that a part of the, the, the penalty would be a ban on municipal properties. So where there has been violence, where we can prove through the court system there has been violence, then the municipality, I believe, has the clear right to say, well, we don't want those individuals back on any municipal property. We've also heard an offer, a lot of concerns over the last 48 hours or so about uh, police activity and police response to this. Do you share those concerns? Um, I, I'm not privy to the stats. I've only heard things anecdotally. Uh, I know that the police respond as quickly as they can to issues that are coming up, um, but I really can't comment on specifics that I'm not, I am not. I don't have the facts on. I'm sorry, Bill. Well, it's obviously something I guess the Police Services Board is going to have to deal with before City Council does. I mean, if we're supposed to follow, I guess, uh, where the responsibility lies for situations like that, police activity, I guess, goes first to them and then councillors. I guess you are as a councillor. You've got the right to talk about anything you want, I suppose, but the policy is going to have to actually come from the Police Services Board, I would think. And I, and I, and I would argue that the police have um, and, and they know this. Is, it's not just a matter of enforcement. Um, the police can play a significant role in, in uh, tamping down the heat of a demonstration. They, they, they have the ability to interact with protesters and, and, and guide them to what is a more reasonable protest and avoid the pitfalls of, of, of breaking the law. Um, so they have that role also. I, I mean, yeah. We have crime managers in all of our wards that will come out and meet with us, and frequently they end up mediating between neighbors where there are disputes, and they do a fantastic job. Uh, they, they, we just need to have people paying attention, monitoring, and stepping up to provide some leadership and guidance so that these groups, um, they have the right to protest, but let's make sure that they're not inciting violence or hatred. How soon do you expect to move on this? Uh, the city manager has indicated that it would be back in the fall. Um, I uh, candidly, I I don't I don't think that's fast enough. I, I this has been on the table since uh, 2018 was my understanding. Um, I this is a matter that is compelling public interest. That is a problem now, and I think we need to move as quickly as we can to review those policies. And start to put a strategy in place to to calm this protest down, um, and and have them uh, being a little bit more respectful, but by the same token, still expressing their their political views. Are you concerned, Brad, that with the publicity that's happened, especially over the last few days, because of what happened not just at Gage Park, but of course at, in the City Hall forecourt as well, uh, that that we're actually moving this thing toward a boiling point? I mean, I'm assuming there's going to be another one this coming weekend. Um, I am concerned about um, confrontation uh, between citizen groups and the protesters. Um, uh, my preference would be to allow the police and security to monitor the situation. I don't think it's in anyone's interest to, to have a confrontation where violence could ensue. Uh, we don't want anyone to get hurt. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I agree that they have, everyone has the right to protest, including those who, who believe that we want to be free of hatred, and, and we want to be an accepting and caring community. 
Um, I, I just could not encourage in, in, in my good heart that they should be confronting this group. I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think that's dangerous, and, and I, don't, I don't want that to happen to anybody. I, I, I just I wouldn't sleep well if I encouraged them to go out. Yeah, and we're, yeah, we're hearing some of that rhetoric on social media too, and you're right; it's wrong-headed, and, and it's it's really making the, a, a situation like this even worse. And hopefully, calmer heads will prevail. Uh, Brad, as always, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate the time today. No, thank you, Bill. Brad Clark, uh, City Councilor, are very concerned about, as all the councilors uh, have expressed over the last few days, about what is going on. Uh, and and that's his point. I think is well taken about confrontation. And I know that I've seen some comments on social media, uh, on Twitter, and, and some other forms over the last couple of days, especially, about what might happen this weekend. Hopefully nothing. I'm, I'm not suggesting there won't be a, a demonstration in front of City Hall. Probably will be. But I know that a lot of tempers are flaring right now because of the activities at Gage Park and what happened at the forecourt in City Hall. Uh, not so much from, from some of the victims of the LGBTQ community, but some others that are very upset about what happened and, and the, the, the freedom of license, I guess, that some people seem to think that they can do whatever they want and say whatever they want, even if it comes to physical confrontation. But we were told yesterday by the chief of police that they are still investigating that incident at Gage Park. And it is an open investigation. And, uh, of course, at that point, they're not going to tell you whether or not charges are imminent or anything else. But apparently they have ID'd some of the particulars involved in that and uh, we'll, we'll wait and see exactly what they're going to do. But we don't want to make that situation even worse by having another confrontation this coming weekend. And uh, I would imagine that, that the, the authorities, including police services here in Hamilton, are aware of that and are probably cognizant of that. And I'm not so sure that you wouldn't see a, maybe a bit of an increased police presence around the city hall uh, this coming Saturday. But that remains to be seen at this point. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister is in Washington right now. He'll be meeting with uh, Donald Trump a little bit later on today. And I'm sure trade is going to come up at least once, uh, and especially in light of the fact that, uh, well, we've got this trade deal, this NAFTA or Kumsa or whatever you want to call it, uh, that is yet to be ratified by the uh, U.S. government and the Canadian government. Yesterday, the Mexican government did what they had to do, and they ratified the deal. So what are the implications, and uh, what can we expect from... Uh, a meeting of the minds down in Washington. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGood School of Business at McMaster University, joins us here in studio to talk about this. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. Uh, th- th- these guys aren't the best of friends, uh, the prime minister and the president. <laughs> uh, not like we've had other relationships with other no. uh, state leaders uh, from the two countries. That's true. But uh, notwithstanding that, Marvin, somehow th- things seem to still get done here. I know mm-hmm. I know. Uh, th- some of the things that get said when they're thousands of miles apart are, are, are rather bothersome, but they seem to... Some congeniality when they get together, and there's some progress being made. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly say that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau understands the value of the relationship with the American president, and uh, uh, he walks a very fine line. All prime ministers do. We don't want to be seen as lapdogs of the Americans. We want to have our own character on the national stage or international stage. We want our own goals. And this is a president who very much seems to be, uh, whose doctrine seems to be, let's make America great again. Let's make America the most dominant power in the world. And everyone else, you have to bow down to me. So how do you 
uh, exert Canadian independence and at the same time be seen as cooperative with Donald Trump. It's a very difficult game to play, also recognizing that which Trump you're going to see. He can wake up one morning and be combative. He can wake up one morning and be more conciliatory. So what we have going on today, yes, it's a meeting, but it's it's truly the blue ribbon meeting. Mr. Trudeau has gone to Washington with many of his cabinet, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, Christy Freeland, the, the foreign affairs. Um, they're going to meet with Trump and Pence. Uh, they're going to meet with Pompeo, who's their secretary of state. So it's a, it's a high-level group of people. Stephen Mnuchin, their, their finance person, uh, it's a high-level group of people. Now, the first order of business is uh, approving the USMCA or something else. You're correct. Mexico approved it yesterday. Their House had done it earlier. Mm -hmm. It was their Senate yesterday. And, Bill, an amazing thing. I think there's something like 120 people in their Senate, or should be 120 people in their Senate. 111 voted for it, four voted against, and three abstained. And I think there's one person who's absent or dead or something like that. But uh, overwhelmingly approved it. So Mexico done, ratified. Trudeau's going to take the message to Trump that, well, Mr. Trump, I've introduced this into our parliament. We've had two readings of the bill. Under Canadian law, you have to have three readings, and our House rises tomorrow for a summer recess. But he will say to Mr. Trump, I am prepared to recall the House to have that third and final reading and then pass it to the Senate. And I've had indications from the Senate they'd have a, an emergency session and approve it. So we're on board to get this done by Labor Day. How are things going in the United States? And that's when Trump will turn to Mr. Lighthizer, who's been holding a lot of high-level meetings with Democrats, um, trying to push the case that he'd like to get this approved before they rise on August 1st. So you have 18 more days that the uh, House of Representatives meet in the United States. That's where the stickiness is. And uh, Mr. Lighthizer has said to the House that he is prepared to do whatever it takes to get their approval. Will Nancy Pelosi play ball? That's the thing we don't know. But before the day is out, Mr. Trudeau's meeting with her as well. So when, when Lighthizer said whatever it takes, I mean, th th he doesn't really have a whole lot to give away here. <laughs> well, no, his, his game is this. The document as is really should be considered a fait accompli, meaning there isn't really any room to, to renegotiate anything that's in the document. Yeah. However... If you have some concerns, let me take them and create a side deal. To the extent the Democrats in the House have any concerns, it doesn't seem to be with Canada. On that front, our relationship seems to be fine. If they have any problems, it seems to be around Mexico. Uh, at the same time that Mexico just approved uh, the USMCA, they also just approved a new set of uh, rules and regulations for workers giving workers more rights, uh, raising their wages. These are things that the Democrats want. Uh, but the Democrats seem to be worried about what they call enforcement. In other words, yes, you're saying the right things today, but if you change your mind and start going in a different direction, how can we force you to keep doing the right thing? So Mr. Lighthizer, I'm sure, is saying, look, I can have a side deal. I can go to the Mexicans, get a side deal. Can you approve the core deal? Let me deal with this otherwise. And I don't know how that's playing out in Congress. Maybe we need to step back just a second here and talk about exactly what this deal does do, encompasses. And I don't want to go through this line by line or page by page or anything like that, but, but this is not the, the consummate trade agreement. I mean, there are still other things that are going on here with the different sectors, are there not? 
Yes. So I think the best way to think of the USMCA deal is that it's a modernization of NAFTA. I know, I know our good friend Mr. Trump said he was going to rip it up and he was starting with a blank page and and so on and so forth. But really, if you read it through, there are great echoes of the original NAFTA, except that that deal was 25 years old. So there are clauses in here now about internet trade. There is some modernization around patents and trademarks. Uh, you might remember that we've, we're changing the rules about what can come into our country, uh, if you will, duty-free. If you buy yeah. a package from the United States right now and it's more than $25, you could get slapped a, a tax on that. Instead, the idea is to take that number up to something, I think it's 250 or $300, which is going to help internet trade as between the nations. So it's a modernization. But no, it's not perfect. Um, from the American standpoint, they wanted more American content in North American-made automobiles. Uh, they aren't completely happy <laughs> around, again, trademarks and copyrights. They wanted to give basically American companies developing new drugs more time to recoup their investment, and we didn't agree with that. So like all agreements, they are a bit of a compromise. Um, having said that to you, it is the most successful trade thing Donald Trump has done. For all of his talk and bluster, he has not negotiated free trade with Europe. Canada has. He's withdrawn from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Canada has not. Uh, he doesn't have a good relationship with China. That continues to boil. So I think he feels he needs a victory. Let's get this one done. Then maybe he can leverage that further. Yeah, but that, you just mentioned, I guess, the elephant in the room, if you excuse the metaphor, yep. and that's China. Yeah, absolutely. Which is going to have an impact on both these countries. Well, that's correct. So once we get the trade discussion today with, with the senior people, the next thing Mr. Trudeau wants to talk about is China. Uh, next, let me get the dates right here, next Friday and Saturday in Tokyo, I believe it is, there's a meeting of what's called the G20, the yep. 20 largest economies of the world, and China is going to be there. And Mr. Trump has already booked a significant meeting with the Chinese leader. Uh, Mr. Trudeau has as well, but he wants both leaders singing from the same songbook, and he wants to raise a couple of issues. First, uh, obviously, the Canadians being detained in China, who he feels are collateral damage in the war between the United States and China, trade war between the United States and China. He wants to talk a bit about uh, Madame Meng. I wouldn't be surprised if quietly the Canadian officials are thinking that maybe they made a mistake arresting her and, and maybe they'd like to cancel this whole thing and they're testing the waters to see how Trump might feel about this. Uh, also, we've got the whole question of 5G capability for the smartphone networks and the role of Huawei and all of that. So they've got lots to talk about and see if they can get to some a consistency before that meeting next Friday, and that will be the next issue on the table. Well, and let's talk about the influence of Huawei. I mean, that China Chinese government is one element of this, but Huawei is the other one. Obviously, I, I agree with you. Obviously, the, the, the Canadians are being detained right now is a major problem. Five G is one that we don't talk on a whole lot about, but it's it's become a rather contentious issue. Uh, the United States has already said that they're not going to use Huawei for their five G technology. Canada has not yet. No, and no. they're one of the. I think they are the only now of the five I countries that share. Uh, sensitive security issues uh, that have decided to, to turn their back on Huawei. Uh, Huawei's got a pretty big footprint in this country already. It does. And, and you know, when we say Huawei can't be involved, I think the average person listening to us will think of Huawei phones. It has nothing to do with the phones, the handsets. They would operate on a 5G network. It is that also that Huawei produces technology that enables 5G capability. And again, just maybe I should back up for a moment and say that 5G, fifth generation yeah. for, for smartphones, it's all about speed. Um, it would truly allow gigabit internet speeds to give you a sense of it uh, under 3G if you were downloading a movie. 
it would take you about four hours. Um, today, uh, under 4G technology, it takes about you know six, seven minutes to download the movie, and under 5G, you could get it done in just a few seconds. So you know these are l- major leaps forward, and and whether we like it or not, Huawei produces a lot of technology that other parts of the world are adopting without a concern. Yeah. What is the concern? Well, because the Chinese government has a stake in Huawei, a significant stake in Huawei, how do we know that this technology is only enabling 5G as opposed to enabling 5G and allowing China to peer into the stuff being communicated over the network? There's all this concern about China and espionage, what have you. Uh, Canada, I'm going to say to its credit, has not automatically ruled out Huawei's participation and wants to do its own investigation. Canada has... uh, one significant challenge that many other countries do not have, and that is that we are a small number of people in the second largest geographic space in the world. And how do we get all of those people connected at a speed that is good? So I don't blame them for not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think ultimately they will say that Huawei can't participate in the infrastructure, but they want to see, and, and actually right now is not the time to make that decision given Madam Mung. And we just heard yesterday that another pork uh, company has been disqualified from shipping pork to China, even though China is facing pork problems of their own. So, you know, this is not the right time to jump on that bandwagon. But it's it's just... It's- seems to be piling on Canada. Sure it does. Uh, China can't do a whole lot to harm the United States right now, so they, uh, by proxy, they're taking it out on Canada. And, sure. and I'm sure the, the Prime Minister today is going to say, Let's, Mr. President, I need your help here. He, well, he's going to try to say that. Whether Mr. Trump has any sympathy, this goes back to their personal relationship. Um, I, I think Mr. Pence being in the room and Mr. Pompeo being in the room are great news for us. Because... Uh, Compared to Donald Trump, these are people who get a bigger picture. They understand the bigger picture. They understand that actions have consequences and and that we're an ally that needs their support. Whether Mr. Trump will get it on his own or whether they'll be able to convince him of it, I'm not certain. So Justin is rolling the dice here, but it's dice that need to be rolled. We need to go down there and keep talking to him, especially in advance of this G20 meeting. Well, because there's so much on this and and the problem, and I guess the concern that I have, and I'm sure the, the Canadian contingent has, is you don't know how the president's going to react. Uh, well, for instance, if, if he draws a line in the sand and says, Canada, you've got to say no to Huawei, and you've got to, you you got to go through with this extradition, uh, and the prime minister hedges on that, I mean, you know, are terrorists back on the table? I mean, this guy will do anything. Yes, and a great example of this is here's Mexico yesterday uh, ratifying the USMCA, and today Mr. Trump is again talking about tariffs. Uh, his his trumped-up concern seems to be about uh, illegal immigrants coming across the border and drugs and so on and so forth. China, uh, and the, Mexico is saying, look, we're doing enough on this already. We're, we, we're, and they've given statistics to prove how much how well they're doing on this. But that doesn't stop Mr. Trump at all. So I don't think you can ever count Mr. Trump in your column, so to speak, that he's ever going to be a guaranteed supporter of yours. But you can't give up trying to influence him. And, and that's why I've always given great credit not just to Justin, but to the whole senior team and, frankly, every premier and every mayor in Canada going to their equivalents in the United States and continuing over time to make our case. We didn't used to have to do this, but it seems with Mr. Trump in power, we need to keep reminding people about this relationship. 
which is happening all the time. You mentioned Christy Freeland and Bill Morneau are there. They they probably have put more air miles between Ottawa and Washington than anybody else yep. has and develop a relationship with their American counterparts. Yep. And I, I would imagine that's who they're going to lean on in, in this meeting. Yes, and, and so if you take a great example, I, I we've talked about this before, Mr. Lighthizer, who's their trade representative, he was the key point person on the USMCA agreement. He stands about six foot five, six foot four. He's a tall fellow. And Christy Freeland stands about four foot ten. Yeah. And I'm absolutely certain the first time he met her, he said, well, this is going to be a pushover. And instead, she's turned out to be an absolute pit bull in these negotiations. Mr. Trump doesn't like her. He doesn't like her because she doesn't give him what he wants. I, I don't think she like. He, he doesn't like strong women. He doesn't like Nancy Pelosi. Fair either. enough. Fair enough. Uh, but Mr. Lighthizer, I think, has developed quite a quite a respect for, for Christia Freeland and, and has time for her. And I think that's what's important. Even if we lose Mr. Trump, do other people in the administration continue to listen? And as long as they do, there is hope. Because the other thing about Mr. Trump is that his policies... Although he, he says he's on a specific arc, they do vary day to day, and it's kind of whoever was in there last gets his ear, that can affect him. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. All this may just get tossed out the window. Who knows? On today. Who knows? Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other day we were talking about environmental plans and obviously the the carbon pricing tax that uh, the Trudeau government has put in place here in this country. Uh, Doug Ford is fighting that in court uh, and on and on it goes. And uh, we figure this is going to be one of the key election uh, strategies uh, for both parties as we head towards the election in October. But we were waiting and waiting and waiting for uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer to decide or define really what the conservative policy was going to be. Well, yesterday he made that announcement. And uh, it, as we expected, is a lot different from what the liberals are proposing. Conservatives fundamentally believe that you cannot tax your way to a cleaner environment. Instead, the answer lies in technology. And a real plan to protect our environment recognizes this. Well, and uh, that seemed to be the the foundation for an awful lot of what uh, the Mr. Shear actually put forth yesterday. Uh, the response to this, well, here's a here's a deal breaker for you. The Liberals are, are opposed to it. They think it's a, a silly idea. But a lot of other experts, uh, both sides of the border, both small C conservatives and and environmentalists, uh, have some concerns about what Mr. Shear is proposing as well. Uh, to get a read on this, I want to bring Steve Apple back to the conversation. He is a publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO two carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Uh, and uh, obviously a very strong uh, environmental uh, critic and, and observer about what's going on. Steve, first of all, thanks for joining us. Great to have you back on the program today. Great to be back, Bill. Uh, you've had a chance, I guess, to, to peruse what Mr. Shear had to say. What, what's your impression? Well, he's, uh, he's come out, you're absolutely right that, uh, this is, that he's come out with something quite different from the Liberal plan. So it's, it's, uh, the main differentiator is, is exactly how you put it. The Liberals like the carbon tax. Uh, they're following the, the advice from the, the climate policy elites in Canada and the, uh, for most part around the world. And the Conservatives are favoring the technological approach. And I guess the way that to the best way to evaluate the, you know, the, the superiority of, of, uh, of, of uh, the respective platforms is to simply look at what evidence is there that the technological approach has actually reduced emissions uh, versus uh, the carbon tax. And if you look at the, if you look at the, um, evidence from around the world, uh, jurisdictions that have adopted a technological approach to uh, energy use, uh, you do see some um, major examples of significant uh, either reductions or avoidances of CO2 uh, from, uh, from major energy use, and I'm talking about electricity, 
uh, in in several very notable, very advanced jurisdictions. And you uh, you you uh, and uh, I'm talking about Sweden, Switzerland, France, and our great uh, province of Ontario here. Uh, versus, uh, in my opinion, uh, not very much evidence on the other side. The, 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 the pro-carbon tax uh, people point to what they consider to be examples of, of, this, of, this, of the success of that policy, and I just think that that's debatable. So I, I'm, uh, I, I, tend to, uh, I tend to favor the conservative approach uh, simply because there's evidence that it actually works. Uh, it, well, the criticism I've read in, uh, from a number of sources, a couple of editorials in the National Post, John Iverson wrote a rather insightful article about it, I'm sure you've read as well uh, this morning, uh, and they, they all consistently seem to be casting doubt as to whether or not this is actually even doable and whether or not industry is actually going to fa- come in on side with this. Well, it's it, exactly. It, it, the, the question is how do you get industry to buy into the technology? Uh, the, the, the conservative leader hasn't identified the technology that he's talking about. He mentioned some big uh, green uh, technology um, um, phrase, but what does that mean? In, in my opinion, these four jurisdictions that I just mentioned, Sweden, France, Switzerland, Ontario, have electricity that is far cleaner than, than most jurisdictions, most advanced industrial jurisdictions on the planet. Uh, they've got, there's a common denominator among them. You know what it is. It is nuclear. The, the, uh, the, which has been, you know, pro- providing power, most of the power in Ontario for the last 40, 50 years. It's actually broadcasting our two uh, resonant voices out to the province right now as we speak. Uh, that, is, that is the common denominator among all these things. Uh, that's the technology that, uh, that's the technological approach that if the conservative leader were to go with that, uh, it dovetails with everything else that he said. So he's talking about exporting technology. We've exported this technology to other countries. In China, we've got two Candus in China. That's 1,400 megawatts. That's 1,400 megawatts that is not being delivered with coal. Uh, and, and that's that's a direct one-to-one displacement of, of energy. And it's the, it works out that way in every other grid that we've exported uh, to. South Korea, uh, India, um, uh, Argentina, Romania. Uh, that This is something that would dovetail quite perfectly with what he just said. So I think that there's, uh, as long as you're specific about the technology that you're talking about, if you're favoring a technological approach, as long as you've got the right technology, you will see results. But you're going to get the same pushback. We're all working on the premise here, though. You know, let's assume for a second here that Andrew Shear is the prime minister after the election, and he yeah. tries to implement something like this. Uh, and by the way, there are a lot of similarities between what uh, Doug Ford is proposing and what Andrew Shear is proposing, and that's not surprising. But yeah. the, the same criticism is in play that we've heard, though, uh, from well, from even the the, the plan that uh, that Kathleen Wynne put in place when uh, she did uh, uh, the cap and trade. And it's simply this: the major polluters are also the biggest companies. And uh, they are going to say that if we have to do what Andrew Shearer is suggesting right now, we, as an international entity, are going to be at a huge disadvantage with our competitors. We can't afford to do this. We can't afford to comply. That's that's well. That's not a trivial. Uh, that's not a trivial objection. So, so you're absolutely right about this. I, I think that the, the the way that this has to proceed is that, like, from a technological approach. Again, back to the technology technological approach, which, uh, which again, differentiates the, the liberals from the conservatives, or the conservatives from the liberals. Uh, if the technological approach is to electrify, uh, electrify energy, well, then, then that, that's, that's, how this will, that's how this will proceed, and, and the, the details of that, I think, will shake themselves out. As long as you've got a large-scale source of 
cheap electricity, which which uh, 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 my favorite technology is certainly capable of providing, uh, then uh, I, I think that those a lot of those problems, a lot of those details that you mentioned, would uh, might, might not turn out to be all that decisive. But uh, uh, the Liberal plan, at least uh, in the Trudeau plan anyway, I guess foresaw that, or maybe they heard some f- some feedback from industry. Uh, and there are some 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 compensation packages that are available to some of the, the larger emitters. Sure, didn't talk about that yesterday. No, that's right. I, I I don't I don't expect that we would see much of a difference between the, the you know a lot of the slack that the Liberals have cut some of the large emitters. So they've 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 cut uh, uh, for Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, yeah. and and even Alberta. They've they've cut a lot of slack for a lot of that, like really really major emitters, just on the uh, because of the fact that these are as you said large companies, uh, very significant operators in the market, and you it's just unrealistic to, to take them out. So I I don't think that the conservatives would be that different when it comes to generator by generator, uh, province by province. Uh, you know, uh, making some sort of allowance for the fact that, that some of these are very important, you know, uh, big providers of energy. Uh, the plan, though, does not stipulate just how much companies would have to pay for exceeding these uh, thresholds. So, in other words, he talked. He, he, now, this is like at fifty thousand feet. I mean, that's basically what he was talking about yesterday, Steve. Uh, and we don't know about implementation. We don't know how, what you know what kind of. Well, I'll use the term fines, although I don't think that's the terminology that Sheer used. But for the the, the ones that are are the serious uh, emitters of this stuff right now, uh, the, the, just the ten second version of this, as you've already described, is is that they would they would have to pay a penalty. That penalty would not go to taxpayers, not go into government coffers. It would go towards technology, okay. uh, which sounds like a wonderful job but that's a, and great concept. But the idea is, how do you get them to comply? Uh, how much are they going to put into it? Uh, or are they simply going to thumb the nose at this, like others have said, and said, look, I'm not going out of business just to make you look good. So, you know, we're going to continue to do this. And if I have to pay a penalty, big deal. Yes, they'll, they will run into those kinds of exactly those considerations. So you're going to have to. You're, it's going to, you know. And and let's not uh, let's not uh, beat around the bush. We're talking about Alberta. So Alberta is the biggest emitting province yep. in Canada. And I mean, the, so the Liberals are going to use the proceeds from the from Trans Mountain to for green energy, quote unquote. What does that mean? Uh, the Conservatives are going to are going to put this into a fund that the they're going to make large emitters pay into a fund for green energy. What does that mean? Again, we're back to the technological details. If that green energy is proven to reduce emissions, uh, then we're talking. Then you know, I'm not going to say we're cooking with gas. Yeah, we have to but shelve that one. Then we're talking turkey. Uh, and and in that case, you you need to go with a uh, electricity delivery model that is proven to you know provide cheap energy because you've got two criteria for you know as we as we get into you know solving this this climate problem, it, our energy has to be zero carbon. It has to demonstrably you know reduce emissions on 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 massive on a massive scale, hundreds of millions of tons. Uh, that's first of all, and second, it's got to be affordable. So the only way that you achieve that is with scale. The only way that you achieve that is, well, there's some uh, uh, electricity reform that's going to have to happen, and those are all down the road. The conservative leader, he didn't, he didn't, you know, rule out any of that kind of stuff. This is what's going to have to happen when we actually start addressing these problems. If, if you start making emitters pay into a fund for green energy, uh, they're going to say, well, we want to see, we want to make sure that there's going to be reductions out of this. this. Is not some some slush fund for people who are connected with the party. So uh, all of these, you know, there's a lot of details that have to get sorted out. But it's just really interesting that we go into the election 
and we've got a, you know, we finally got a cleavage in, in uh, uh, energy policy, you know, carbon tax versus the technological approach. I think it's quite interesting. Well, and I mean, the carbon tax, I guess, is is a little more real. Well, I'm not going to say it's realistic, but I mean, it's it's been in place for a while, and it's been in place in some other jurisdictions, BC and, and others. Although they're very they're variations, as you and I have talked about in the past. Yeah. There's there, there's no one size fits all for the, for this plan, uh, not unlike uh, what what has happened with other programs and that have been in place. Uh, and what we and you know, BC, some people in BC I've talked to have said, "Hey, it's been great, we love it." Others say, "No, it's been a total disaster." It's been, so it's it's in the eyes of the beholder, I suppose. But I guess the concern a lot of people have about what Sheer talked about yesterday, though, Steve, is, is like you say, it's short on detail, and it's all based on the premise that everybody's going to play by the rules. Everybody's going to say, you're right, we need to get on board. Okay, we're going to reduce these, uh, and we're going to put this money into the fund if we don't come meet the targets, that, uh, which, by the way, didn't even get discussed yesterday. You didn't even talk about targets. Uh, that, that's, that's correct. That's and and correct. then, so, so we're going to invest in, quote-unquote, green technology. Uh, and and Shear's assumption was that well you know what once that money pays for all that research and we develop new technologies everybody's going to employ it well not necessarily you no, know company course. ABC may say I can't afford to do that I'm doing what I'm doing right now so yeah. it, you know so what good is the new technology if it's not going to be employed we don't know exactly how is is he going to force them to do that or is it going to be optional we don't know yes that, 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 those are excellent points this is this is those details have to get have to get sorted out. In the you know from fifty thousand feet, what has worked around the world? You know you can you take the, uh, the the jurisdictions that have adopted the carbon tax, and you take it you take jurisdictions that have adopted a technological approach. Those four examples that I gave versus British Columbia, California, UK, and Germany, because all four of those have a carbon tax. Good grief! There's there's no comparison. The, the technological approach blows the other one out of the water. In terms of achieving results, which I think is the only criterion that we should be discussing, is, does this, you know, at, at, at you know, from you know, time one to time two, do we see a dramatic reduction in CO2 from this approach versus that approach? And and we should like that. The, the automatic choice should be that we go with the one that has produced the results. The, uh, one of the other things that I found rather quizzical about this as I <laughs> went through the text of the speech, he, he, a number of times he mentions the Paris Accord and Paris targets, but at no yeah. time did he say he was actually going to try to meet those. So I, I don't even know why he brought it up. I guess it, may, I guess it sounds good in the speech, but uh, it, it didn't seem relevant at all to what he was proposing. I, I thought he I thought he said that the he may, he may have said this in a subsequent follow up to 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 his main thing yesterday. I thought he said that that we would meet the the, the Paris targets. I'm I'm highly skeptical. That, that Canada is going to do this. We've got 11 years to go, and got a lot of got a lot of carbon chop out of our inventory. So, so, but I thought he had said that. I thought he emphasized that we would be meeting that target. He talked about it in general terms, but then he referenced <laughs> this kind of contradict himself. The speech that uh, you saw from the, the the budget officer yesterday yeah. that essentially said uh, it's, it's going to cost us a ton of money. Excuse the pun. Uh, to get this thing done, and he, he, the budget officer was skeptical that either party was going to be able to do it. Oh, yes, that, yeah, that's. Uh, I think I don't think that there's anybody who who's following this who who believes that we're going to make that target. What do we uh, do here, Steve? I mean, you know, now as you say, the major parties have laid their cards on the table. Uh, well, you know where the NDP stand. Uh, somewhere between the Leap Manifesto and, and the carbon pricing, I suppose. Yeah. 
Uh, God help us if it's the the Leap Manifesto. Uh, but now you've got the Liberal plan, you've got the Conservative plan, uh, the Green Party, Elizabeth Mays put her plan out there, which from an environmental standpoint makes a lot more sense than the other three do, although it probably ruined the economy. So, I mean, you know, it, which it's it's kind of like choose your poison here, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And, well, again, down to the technological approach, as long as we're talking about the right technology, as long as we put nuclear onto the table and stop um, couching our words so that we're trying to not offend Hollywood celebrities or German Green Party members, if, if, we, can, if we can get to that point, you know, we're, we've, we've had nuclear in Ontario for 40, 50 years. We're quite comfortable with it, and we don't believe this this, this uh, nonsense that, 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 comes out of, that comes out of German ideologues. Uh, if, if we get to that point in the conversation, the technological approach is going to take us to where we want to get. We, we just, it's, it's, a, it's completely uh, uh, down to public opinion and the you know, respective leaders' perception of public opinion. That's why, that's why nobody's mentioning this. But uh, sooner or later, the German example will become quite obvious, and sooner or later, the European states will... Stop worrying about what the what the German hegemon thinks, and and say this emperor is stark naked <laughs> when it comes to uh, their record on on reducing emissions. They haven't reduced emissions, so uh, until we get there, boy, there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of debate. But I'm glad that we've got we've got something. You know, we've got two sides in in this debate uh, uh, going into the election. It's it's going to be quite interesting. Well, it, it is really, and I, like I say, the initial reaction I find fascinating. Uh, because in in some of the circles, especially in the media, that you would think there'd be some support for this. I mentioned John Iverson's column in the National yeah. Post, uh, and even Laurie Goldstein from the Toronto Sun. Uh, small C conservatives, all of them, uh, you know, know them all, great guys, and, and very intuitive. Uh, and they basically saying this is much ado about nothing. There's a, there's a lot of hot air here, but not a whole lot of substance. And I know that the the rest, immediate response to that is, well, the devil's in the details. Well, he didn't announce much in, in the way of details. So it, a lot of this is still up in the air right now. We're not sure. From a theoretical standpoint, I mean, you've already showed us uh, the statistics and, and, the, and, and the numbers here, Steve, to say that this might actually be a better approach than carbon pricing. But we don't know if it's going to work because we don't know how he's going to try to implement it. We don't know the technology. That's exactly right. He, he, what he did yesterday was just a slight bit more specific than getting up and saying, I am going to reduce CO2. Well, uh, of course you're going to reduce. So, 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 so are the liberals. How are you going to do it? Uh, yeah, okay, so he's going to take a technological approach. To me, I guess, uh, you know, you, you, you uh, celebrate progress and these <laughs> little steps. At least he said something that, that differentiates that, and, you know, he's, he's, he's going away from the carbon tax, so we've got something that we can... You know, debate. We've got we've got a legitimate debate happening, so, but uh, boy, I would like to see a little bit more specificity, and I think that that's what uh, uh, those columnists you mentioned also want to see. They, they want to see, some, and they're probably a little bit suspicious of uh, the green energy moniker. What, what's he yeah, talking about? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, has uh, has not uh, lived up to his advertising. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this gets uh, how this becomes more specific. Well, you know, what I'd love to see. I'd love to see a debate among these leaders just on the environmental issues itself. I mean, that that would I'd pay to see that yeah, uh, because I, I I still think this is going to be one of the major issues. It may not be front burner right now because there's so many other things that are going on, but people are showing a real concern for the environment now. Uh, and like I say, a year and a half ago, some of these people that are on side now uh, were still not admitting about climate change and things of this nature. I think we're all on the yeah. same page now as far as that goes. Now we just uh, but the, the debate now is about methodology, and uh, that would be a fascinating discussion and i'm sure it yeah. will happen 
Yeah, I, I, I think that Shear's achievement uh, was with that speech by, by literally, you know, saying just what you said. A year ago, we're, we're discussing is anthropogenic global warming happening? Uh, are, humans, you know, are humans the cause of global warming? Uh, he's taken that out of the party. That's an, that's an achievement because uh, that's a big party. And there are, you know, there's uh, there's some elements in it that that don't buy into this. So I I, I think that uh, you know I'm cautiously optimistic about you know I, I do favor the technological approach. I'll put my cards on the table, but uh, but and but I think that you know politically it was a it was a it was a daring step for the conservative leader because he's actually going against a lot of people in his own base. Yeah, it's going to fascinating to see how they're going to respond. Steve, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank take, you. Take care. Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.